Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. It's time for you. A podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Fiona MacArthur, a network coordinator for Sheep Connect New South Wales. The Sheep Extension Network in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aim is to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on information about all things sheep. Autumn is here and lambing at this time of the year can be a challenge. Regardless of when you lamb though, the science behind making it successful is the same. In this episode of It's Time For You, I'm joined by Nathan Scott to explore ways to maximise your lambing this autumn. Nathan has a background in prime lamb, merino wool, beef production, and a passion for improving productivity and profitability of livestock enterprises. He works with producers to increase conception rates, improve lamb survival, lift growth rates, and hone overall management. Nathan provides advice to individual clients, works with large numbers of producer groups, is a keynote speaker and involved in various industry projects based in Inverlee in Victoria. Welcome, Nathan, and thanks for joining us once again on It's Time For You. Thanks for having me again. Nathan, why is it important for wool growers and our industry to get lambing right? Uh, It's critical for all sheep producers. It's uh, on a number of fronts. One, there's the moral obligation to make sure that we we get things right, but obviously there's also the performance and and profit implications. So if it's a wool production system, it's a lot about having enough numbers to be able to apply the selection pressure and make the genetic gains within our flock. And if you're a prime land producer, then it's clearly all about having numbers on the ground. It's it's all about more mouths and heartbeats because at the end of the day, that's what makes us money um, from a land production point of view. Nathan... When it goes wrong, I guess it's tempting for us to automatically blame the ewes' performance, but no doubt we're basically responsible for everything that goes on with her. Oh, absolutely. And and I guess that's one of my main messages is the sheep are reliant on us. It's our job to give them the best possible opportunity to express their potential. And so it does sit firmly at our feet as the managers of sheep. It's our responsibility responsibility to give them every chance. So in order for us to do that, I guess we need to look at what's limiting the use. So I'd like to sort of go through that a bit now. What can we do? What, what should we be looking at? Oh, there's a number of factors that, that are within our control that we need to be doing everything we can with. And so first and foremost, um, and we'll, we'll probably talk about each of these individually, but it's, it's the condition score of the ewe. It's her nutrition around that time of lambing. Um, it's, it's making sure that we give her enough privacy during that lambing period uh, and, and really just making sure that we set the ewes up from a, from a paddock point of view to give them every possible opportunity to express their potential. And Nathan, we've spoken about this in quite a few other podcasts and webinars throughout the season and scanning so important to this, getting all of this right. Um, is it the first thing that we need to be doing in the process? Oh, absolutely. To me, to me, it needs it needs to be a not negotiable in your sheep production system. Unless we know what her pregnancy status is, so whether she's 
got single twin or even potentially triplets, um, we really can't manage her to our best ability. So the first, and, and to me, it's it's the starting point absolutely, is to know what, what her um, pregnancy status is, and then we can start to tailor the management to meet her needs. Yeah, and that's really important because there's no point just scanning and then thinking, yep, tick that box and not doing anything about it. So we've scanned, we have to then separate them off into groups. So how do we go about meeting their changes in nutritional requirements that they'll have in those groups? So clearly the first step is to recognise that there is a significant difference in the energy requirements of a single versus a twin. And in all reality, our singles are reasonably bulletproof. Their energy requirements aren't as high. Um, their ability to, to look after themselves is much higher. That, that's not an excuse to, to neglect them, but it does mean that um, we just don't need to put in as much effort with them, whereas our twins clearly need our help and their energy requirements are significantly higher. And so it's our responsibility to try and meet those. So whether that's just in the way we allocate the feed resources we've got across the farm in terms of paddock feed, or whether it's actually looking at what we need to do from a supplementary feeding point of view to make up any shortfalls that might be there. And really the best option for people if, if they're not confident in that area is to actually go and seek some more information, go and get some training, a lifetime new management course or something along those lines. Yeah, that's really good advice. and. You just mentioned paddock feed there, and that's obviously the cheapest and easiest way for us to achieve that. How does paddock feed or the food on offer is the way we talk about it in industry, affect the overall success of lambing? Oh, it's a critical factor because, so it affects on a number of fronts. So clearly the quality of the feed and the quantity of feed has a big impact on just how well that used traveling. Um, so if we've got enough feed in front of her, um, from a, from a quantity point of view and the quality is good enough, then it means that she's actually meeting her needs nutritionally. And that's really important for us on a number of fronts. So one, it helps us try and maintain and manage her condition score through that lambing period. But it also has an impact on how well she stays on her birth site. And, and I'll talk about it a, a bit more later on, I'm sure, but it is really important that you stays on her birth site. So when she gets hungry, and she will at some point through that lambing period after she's got the lambs on the ground, we want her to find the feed at her feet rather than having to go and travel across the paddock looking for feed. So we really need to know how much food on offer we've got then. Um, so how do we measure it? So MLA, the MLA pasture ruler has been a fantastic tool for people because it's, a, it's an objective measurement, although there is some subjectivity due to the actual density of the pasture and you need to be able to assess that yourself. It's a really good, simple way to be able to throw it a few times across a paddock, check the height of the pasture and estimate how much is actually there in terms of green feed. The, the biggest problem I've always found is that when I need one of those rulers, I don't have it with me in the ute. And so all I've done is, is recognise that um, if you stand it up against your own pair of boots, you can work out where on your boots those different heights are. So for me, with my boots, the top of the toe of my boot is about that 14, 1500 kilograms of, of feed, which is a a critical target for us in a whole lot of what we do with sheep. Um, and so just knowing that is, is a really simple thing. Every time you step out into the paddock, you can look down your boots and see that that 1,500 kilos that, that we might be targeting, we're either metered or we haven't based on the height on our boots. And as you work your way up your boots, right at the top of the elastic on, on my boots is the 3,000 kilo mark. And we know that if we go beyond that, we're starting to lose feed quality. So it's, it's a really simple one. Some would say it's too simple. Um, but it's certainly a hell of a lot better than doing nothing in terms of measuring that feed on offer.
Yeah, definitely better than doing nothing. And Nathan, I thought my husband was the only weird one. He actually knows on his fingers where his measurements are. So he just walks around dipping his hand into the pasture and arm and knows where his height should be based on that because he, like you, never knows where his roller is. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter how people measure it. Um, the, the, the method doesn't matter. It's the fact that we can actually... Um, accurately assess how much feed is there. That's the critical point here, not how we do it necessarily, but the fact that we are measuring it and we know what's there. So we need to know what's there. We also need to budget, and you've just pointed out that if people would like more information on that, just lifetime you, and you will be able to get as much information as you need to work out your pasture growth rates, be able to budget for what's ahead of you. So what do you recommend is the optimum pasture height. And I'm interested to know what are your recommendations for how this varies with single and twins? Yeah, so in terms of, because the twins, I'll start with the twins because they're our most important and the most vulnerable of our of our um, two options there between singles and twins. So with the twins, we'd like to have 1500 kilos plus. So anywhere in that sort of 1400 to 1600, even up to 2000 kilos would be fantastic. That's easier said than done, and particularly with an autumn lambing. Um, for our singles, our requirements aren't as high because she just doesn't need as much feed in front of her. And to some degree, we want to make sure that she's not getting too much because we don't want to blow those lamb birth weights out on, and cause some dystopia issues. So um, on that front, we're looking at around that sort of 1,000 to 1,200 kilos in front of the singles. So there, again, it's, it's one of those things that some of the time we're not going to be able to hit those targets but it's really important that we know that we're not going to hit those targets. So it's it's not just about making sure we hit them. Sometimes it's about knowing that we're not going to hit them and being able to, to budget around that. Yeah, because once we know that we've got that pasture on ground and you've just sort of um, tweaked it a little bit there, the challenge, of course, is going to be maintaining that going forward, especially at this time of year. Do you have any tips for that? Uh, and that is, I think, probably almost the single biggest challenge of, of the autumn lambing, depending on what area you're in, obviously. But um, even if you do hit your target for, for the start of lambing, we know that, that that winter period is our easiest to predict pasture growth rates pretty much across the country. And it's because at that time of year, our pasture growth rates are being determined by um, soil temperatures and not by the amount of soil moisture. So our soil temperatures cause our pasture growth rates to slow right down. And that's a challenge for us. If, if we're lambing early, like an autumn lambing, you might hit your targets for lambing, but because your growth rates are so slow, the risk is that if our stocking rates are too high, then we're going to eat, the, the, the ewes are going to eat you out of house and home. And they just won't actually finish on very much feed at all by the time you finish lambing. And that coincides with their peak lactation. And if we hurt their peak lactation, you'll hurt their overall lactation. And so it's a, it's a real challenge for us to try and keep the right amount of feed in front of our ewes all the way through lambing. And ultimately, that, that is one of the main reasons why people tend to move away from the autumn lambing, chasing um, a, a slightly better fit for their pasture growth curve for their overall, being able to hit their targets in the first place and then maintain that feed all the way through. And Nathan, and one of the other limiting factors you briefly mentioned before, and you were right, we were going to come back to it, is of course condition score. So how do we best manage our ewes and their condition score? So the first, the first and most important part is actually knowing what it is. So again, this is another plug for lifetime ewe management, but it's really important that people are confident in their condition scoring. So 
when they, they have a sheep in front of them, they know what condition score that they are in because it has so many flow on effects for their performance throughout the year. And when it comes specifically to lambing, there is a direct link between the condition score of the ewe and the birth weight of her lambs. And the birth weight of the lambs has a direct implication in survival. And so that's, that's just a really important factor for us, knowing that condition score in the first place so that we can then target and, and try and move that condition score if we need to, but at least know where we stand in terms of, of our, our implications within lamb survival. You've just mentioned there that that's quite a little complex web condition score is related to birth weight, which affects lamb survival. So it's all really interrelated. What sort of birth weight targets should we be aiming for? So we're targeting that four and a half kilos to five and a half kilos. Now, it's a really small window, actually, and it, and it is difficult to hit. But if we're below four and a half kilos, then our risks of exposure um, go through the roof essentially and so we might we might travel okay with benign weather with those lambs that are in that sort of four to four and a half kilos they might be fine in bad weather but you'll see that when a bad uh, sorry in, in good weather but when a bad weather event comes through you'll see that 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 birth weight that's necessary to keep those lambs alive continues to creep up and that's why that that ideal window is four and a half to five and a half kilos and then the risk is if we go higher than five and a half kilos um, we start to run into trouble out the other end with delayed births, um, some birth trauma, small bleeds on the brain, and, and that will affect the viability of those lambs. And that four and a half kilos of birth weight, what, what's how you going to look like to achieve that condition score-wise? Um, so ideally that's a condition score three or better, and, and really it's sort of in that three to three and a half condition score range. So in your singles, it won't make a hell of a lot of difference because when a ewe is only trying to get birth weight into one lamb, she does it much more easily. And so there isn't a huge change across the condition score profile for a single bearing ewe um, in terms of the birth weight of her lambs. But in the twin bearing ewes, it, it makes a significant difference. So we should be trying to target that condition score three to three and a half to make sure that we get those birth weights in that ideal range. Um, again, that's easier said than done because there's also some implications of late pregnancy nutrition, um, which will also affect birth weight, as well as um, obviously genetics as well. So we, it, it's a complex web, but it's one that we need to try and achieve. And, and one of the things that we often get asked is, but what if my sheep are super fine um, 40, 45 kilo ewes? The unfortunate part is the target from a survival point of view for the lamb is still exactly the same um, because it's all about the surface area to volume ratio in those lambs. We need more volume compared to the surface area. And as we drop birth weight, you get the exact opposite. You get a big surface area on the lamb compared to the volume, and that just means they cool down really quickly, and, and that's what hurts the survival. So unfortunately, it doesn't matter what your U-type is, we're still targeting that same sort of weight range. Which brings us back to why scanning was so important, which is why we started with scanning, because if you don't have those twins off, you're not going to be able to know that they're twins, are you? So you're going to have a, quite a few losses there that are going to be unaccounted for. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that is the problem if we're not scanning for twins and singles and we're running them as one mob, you, you're going to be doing one of two things. You're either going to be feeding your twins like they're singles because you're trying to, to make sure you don't blow the single birth weight out too far, or you're going to be feeding your singles like they're twins, in which case you will blow out their birth weights and you'll have some dystocia issues. So it's just when they're a mixed group, it's just impossible to get that nutrition right. 
that's why we need to scan so that we, we can actually tailor our management to give them the best opportunity. Nathan, one interesting thing that I find people notice when they're sometimes doing their lambing rounds is lambs that are stained at birth. What's the cause of this and does it have any implications down the track? Um, so it's the meconium staining. So the golden lambs that you'll see in the paddock, that's, that's the meconium staining. And to put it bluntly, the meconium is the first poo of the lamb um, and it's passed when there's any sort of stress or trauma in the birth. And it's the same in humans. So if in a, in a human situation, if the doctors see meconium, um, then it's a high priority to get that baby out because clearly the baby's under some sort of stress. So it's exactly the same in, in our sheep. So if we're seeing a lot of meconium staining throughout a paddock, we want to do some investigation to find out just what might be causing it. So sometimes it can be in maiden sheep um, and it's simply the fact that they're a first time lamber and it's a delayed birth and that quite common in, in new lambs that we'll see a higher rate of meconium staining. Um, but outside of that, it could, in, in immature use, it could easily be that it's a, a birth weight issue um, or it could be something like a calcium deficiency um, or, or any of the other deficiencies that may lead to a, a weaker contraction in the ewes and a delayed um, birthing process causing that stress on the, on the lamb. Nathan, we... We've spoken a lot about how condition score affects lamb mortality, but does condition score affect ewe mortality in the same way? And is it worse than we think? Uh, it absolutely does, particularly, and it, and it jumps through the roof as we get into the very low condition scores. So if we've got ewes down around that sort of condition score, one and a half to two, um, then ewe mortality can go through the roof. And it's a complex um, scenario because it will often be in combination with hypercalcemia and pregnancy toxemia, they're all working sort of together in that process. But ultimately it says the U is is crashing and, and we're in trouble. So um, some trial work has seen that uh, from the Lifetime Wool Project found that um, that can get as high as sort of 20 to 30% of U's, and, which is just almost unbelievable. Um, but it's certainly possible and we've seen it before. So it's really important from the ewe's point of view that she's fit and healthy and ready to take on that process of lambing. Nathan, we've just we've seen so many benefits to having the right condition score here. So once we know our condition score and we know the birth type because we've scanned, so we know what's on board, is there can you recommend a way for growers to allocate or prioritize their pasture and shelter to the different groups? Yeah, and this is a really important one, particularly because shelter is a long-term strategy. So while we would all love to have more shelter on a property, the, the, the answer ultimately is that it's a limited resource. And so we need to use it to, our, to its best effect, um, along with our pastures, because we know across any farm there's going to be a range in pasture quality and quantity when we get to that point of lambing. So really, the best shelter and the best feed needs to go, um, go to our most vulnerable sheep. So that's going to start ultimately with triplets, uh, and work our way down to, to twins and particularly our lower condition score twins or triplets um, get the best shelter and the best feed. And, and the other end of the scale is our highest condition score singles get our worst shelter and our worst feed because we know they're quite resilient and their lamb survival is going to be very good anyway. So we should go through a process of allocating that feed to the most appropriate classes of sheep. Nathan, right at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that privacy was really important for survival. And um, 
I made a mental note we should come back to it. How much privacy do they need and why is it really important to getting that survival right? I think it's it's ultimately one of the most underestimated factors in lamb survival. And it's a multi-pronged sort of approach we need to take to try and give them the best possible privacy. So ultimately, a ewe needs a minimum six hours on her birth site to achieve that really strong maternal bond with her lambs. And that's six hours in, uninterrupted. And six hours is the minimum. We're actually trying to give her as much as we can. And if you watch in your paddocks, you'll so, find some ewes will spend 24, 36, even 72 hours on the birth site, which is fantastic. Our job as managers to, is to make sure that they get that chance of uninterrupted time with their own lambs. And so there's a couple of factors in that. The first one is every time we go near a paddock, we have the potential to, to upset that and cause that interruption that we don't want. So in an autumn lambing scenario, one of the, the challenges there is the, the feeding scenario and having to drive into the paddocks. Um, because clearly, particularly if the sheep are hungry, they're going to move off their birth sites. But beyond that, it's, it's and this is, this is just a, an every time of year lambing sort of scenario, is every time we go in to check those ewes, we potentially upset them on their birth sites. So with all of our clients, our aim is to cause the least amount of disturbance. If we can look from one spot in a paddock or from a laneway with binoculars, check if there's any problems. If we see a problem, we go in as quietly as possible to try and fix that problem. If we don't see a problem, we don't go anywhere near them. Um, and sometimes that's a challenge because that you with a problem might be right in the middle of the mob. So in, in some scenarios, we're better just to go and check another paddock, come back, see if she's still in trouble. If she's still in trouble, then sneak in there as quietly as we possibly can, but try not to upset them. But the third and the more complex way that this disruption happens on the birth side is the fact that ewes are looking for the smell of afterbirth. Their hormones kick in as they're about to go into their own active labour um, and they're, they're, they're fully pinging looking for the smell of afterbirth. And so they will travel the paddock looking for, for um, any sign of afterbirth they can find. And the system is designed so that when the ewe drops her lamb, she's already ready, her system's already ready for her to start cleaning that lamb straight away which is great, except that she starts looking for that smell before she's actually gone into her own active labour. and That'll see her visit as many birth sites as she possibly can. Um, and she'll try and clean lambs that aren't hers. And it just creates confusion. No one knows who the lambs are. And as soon as she goes into her true active labour, um, she's not interested in those other lambs anymore. And so they're unfortunately the lambs that we'll find wandering the paddock that will fit in that four and a half to five and a half kilo range. Perfectly healthy lamb. It just hasn't had anyone feeding it. So in our singles, it's not much of a problem because a ewe drops a lamb, she turns around, she cleans it, no one gets a chance to interfere. But in our twins and triplets, it's the time between the first and second lamb or the second and third lamb. Um, that's when there's an opportunity for someone else to come onto the birth site and start trying to clean a lamb that's not theirs. And, and it's a real problem for us. So the only real way to try and overcome that is with mob size, to try and reduce the number of views we uh, lambs we have been born on any given day and looking at mob size as well that would certainly help when we're just going in to check even if you're up in your laneway with your binoculars to look over a huge mob of animals and work out what each of them is doing is no doubt a lot more difficult to do accurately than if you have a much smaller number in the paddock and it is actually that is a really good point because it's one of the main comments that we get from clients that have moved to smaller mob sizes we, we've moved to smaller mob sizes in an effort to try and reduce the confusion on birth sites. 
And actually one of the big benefits that comes out of it is when you stop and you put your binoculars over 70 or 100 or 120 views, it's much easier to see if there's any issues in there compared to when we're trying to check a mob of 200, 250, 300, 500, whatever that number might be. So it means that actually by breaking the mobs down, we, we have to go in a lot less than we would have otherwise looking for problems. And Nathan, what is the ideal mob size for singles and twins? So the, for singles, I'm not too fussed. Um, it really comes down to stocking rate. So in an ideal world, I would love for them to be sort of less than 300, 350, that would be great. But I realise that the practical realities of that are pretty limited because particularly if we're trying to get twin mob size down, we're going to need more paddocks. So if we've got a big paddock that we can use for singles and we can get the, the stocking rate right to match the intake, then I'm happy for singles to be in reasonably large mobs. Um, in twins, however, it's a different scenario. So I often get asked, what's the ideal twin mob size? My answer is one, and anything more than that is a compromise. Um, so clearly we have to get to the practical realities of it all. Um, and so that comes down to how much we can split a farm up either with temporary or permanent fencing. Um, and so we generally tend to fall somewhere around that 100 to 150. But um, in an ideal world, and most of what we target with, with my clients, as a balance between practicality and what's ideal, we're aiming for that sort of 70 to 100. Now, Nathan, we hear about the practicality of this all the time and how difficult and challenging it is for growers to achieve. If they've got a small number of extremely large paddocks, is there actually an easy way, have you found with your clients, of making this happen that's actually feasible? Um, and I'm not for a moment suggesting this is, is simple or straightforward because we know it is a challenge, but lamb survival in general is a challenge. And if we need to take a day or two out of our calendar each year to set up some temporary fencing to allow this to happen and to give us our best opportunity to get the lamb survival, then we should be doing it. Um, so the way we've actually gone about it is, is with temporary electric fencing. Now, if you had said to me five or six years ago, we're going to have a whole lot of temporary electric fencing being used in a sheep system, um, across your client base, I would have said you were joking. Um, there wasn't much chance of that happening. But the reality is, particularly with, with heavily pregnant ewes, they're not interested in jumping. They're not taking on fences. So even big composite ewes, we're holding behind two electric fence wires pretty easily in a lot of cases. So um, it gives us that ability to split paddocks up where we otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And, and it one of the great advantages is it allows us to use our best paddocks in terms of shelter and feed we get to use them to their absolute ultimate. We get to, to um, dictate our mob size that we're targeting with electric fencing, but we also manage to keep our stocking rates up where they should be in those better paddocks. So it's a really good win-win. And often we'll hear people say, oh, yeah, not on our scale. We wouldn't be able to. Um, we had a client this year. He had 6,500 twin-bearing ewes to lamb down. His average mob size was 70. Um, he also had 3,100 ewe lambs to lamb down. Uh, his average mob size across those was 50. Uh, and it's it's a big property. It's got some big paddocks. They've just done a lot with hot wires. And it's made a hell of a difference to their results. And it's not as difficult as we thought it was going to be when we first took it on. They're incredible numbers there, Nathan. And that's great to know that there are farmers out there that are achieving it without a great deal of input. So before we finish up, I'd just like to quickly talk about predators. Um, my take has always been on foxes, that they don't tend to go in and take down a healthy lamb. Would you agree? 
well, they certainly don't take down a lamb that wasn't already going to die. Sometimes it might have been a healthy lamb, but it's just been mismothered because of that interruption that we're talking about on the birth site. Could have been a perfectly healthy lamb. It just doesn't have anyone looking after it. Um, but yes, foxes generally are only going to eat what was already going to die. And they're not stupid. They will look for a hot meal, but they'll look for an easy one. So that lamb that's wandering around that's mismothered or that big lamb that's got a small amount of brain damage from a delayed birth that's wandering around, um, foxes will absolutely take them down and you will see that that, that predation is happening in your paddock. But in terms of them coming and taking a lamb from a ewe, that's a much more rare scenario. And so um, sometimes we will see it. You'll see a sport killer amongst the foxes and that's generally when you'll find lambs that haven't been eaten They've just had the tongue taken out or they've just taken the tail. And that's a, if you've got one of those sport killers, you do need to track him down and you need to kill him. Um, but outside of that, generally speaking, the foxes are only taking what's easy for them. And generally anything that's easy doesn't have a use standing anywhere near it. Nathan, once we've managed to get all of this as right as we possibly can and we've managed to get through lambing, how important is it to look back and evaluate? Oh, it's really important. We know that we've only got a, a limited number of lambings each in our careers and so it's about trying to get each one better. And the only way we can get better is to change what we're doing. So we need to go through a process of looking at what worked last year, which paddocks performed really well, what were the circumstances around it, what did we get right in terms of condition score and feed on offer and all those different things. And we need to be able to actually review and work out what worked, what didn't work, what are we definitely going to do next year, what are we definitely not going to do next year. It's a really simple process. And part of that should be actually weighing every lamb that you come in contact with. So we talked earlier about birth weights and the ideal birth weight that we should be targeting. The only real way that you can know whether you're anywhere near that is to weigh any lamb you come in contact with. So if you happen to be in a lambing paddock and you see a dead lamb, pick it up and weigh it. If you have to pull a lamb because it needs assistance, then weigh it. And you'll soon paint a picture for yourself of where just where those birth weights are. Um, and you'll also give yourself a really good idea for next year what you need to do differently. Ultimately, we can't get better if we don't review what happened last year and if we don't make some change and try and make progress in our system. That's a really simple, practical tool to use. I like that. And we've just up over the last half an hour discussed how it's all interrelated. So finding out just that one thing will give you a lot of feedback and information to move forward for next year. Yeah, it's really important. And it, 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 I can't stress it enough. If, if you've never done it before, if, if nothing else from this podcast, Take, if you don't take anything else away from it, at least go and get yourself a set of scales that you can weigh lambs with this year. And that can be as simple as the main ones we use are actually just the cheap $10 luggage scales, little digital ones. They can sit in the motorbike easily um, in the glove box of the ute. Anytime you come across a lamb, pick it up, weigh it. It's a really simple thing and it makes a big difference to the way you review your lambing. Great. Thanks, Nathan, for once again joining us on It's Time For You. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share our podcast within your networks. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales, and you can do this in a number of ways. 
Join our network by visiting www.sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com.au. Find us at Sheep Connect New South Wales on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to seeing you at our workshops and events later in the year. Thanks again for joining us today. Bye for now.